Hello, and welcome to this Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, suddenly... There's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work here. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. Joining me today is Dickie Meaden on debut, and David Brabham. Hello. So that's 24 Grand Prix, three Le Mans wins, one of, his, one of which is outright, five podiums, four Sebring wins, one Bathurst, Shall one Spa 24, one Macau, one British F3 Championship, one All Japan GT Championship, and two LMS Championships. Which is the best? Which is the best? Yeah, let's start with an easy question. Oh my God, what's the best one? That's a very good question, actually, because each, you know, each one is a different phase in your life. Um, some were more challenging than others. Um, obviously, the highlight winning Le Mans overall um, is a kind of given, but it doesn't mean to say that was my most satisfying sort of win in terms of what we had to go through. It was that win in particular, I think, was satisfying more because of the politics that was involved in the team at the time and having to <laughs> having to kind of uh, navigate yourself through that and try and clear a path where our side of the car, our team, would make the right decisions at the right time. Uh, so that was as satisfying as actually <laughs> going across the finish line first. Is, is uh, that disappointing when, when you're in a team like that and the politics become that, you know, they're almost as, you put as much effort into managing that as you do when you're in the car, or is it just part of the, part of the sport at that level, possibly particularly in a French team? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a big team, so you're always going to have some sort of politics going on. Um, I'd say that was pretty high in terms of politics at the time. And I think that's some of the reason why I was brought in, to try and sort of calm that so down a bit. Diffuse that Yeah, situation. a little bit, yeah, because <clears throat> I had, I guess I was the older, oldest one there and I had, I had a lot of experience working with a lot of teams, driving with lots of different manufacturers and small teams. So I got a really good mix of, you know, how to do things and how not to do things. And so when I arrived there, it was quick, you know, I sort of, I had to learn the car because it was a lot quicker than what I was used to in America with the Acura. Um, and then um, just getting to know everybody, understanding how the team works was, yeah, I mean, that, that was as big an effort as it was trying to learn the car and how to go fast. So um, it, it's kind of, you expected to be some politics there. It was probably higher than I thought it would be. But I thought it also opened up an opportunity because um, I felt if we could just do things in a certain way, we would have a clearer path than perhaps the other side. And that's how it panned out. Yeah. It's kind of the opposite to your Bentley run, where you had the car, you had the speed, you had everything but luck. Yes, <laughs> yeah, luck, luck didn't quite go our way, that one. I mean, you know, we finished first and second. We achieved what Bentley wanted to achieve. Um, obviously, as an individual, you want to win. You don't want to be second. Um, I can remember crossing the finish line with zero feeling whatsoever. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just finished second at Le Mans, but I knew 
you know, if you look at my career, I've not always driven for works teams. I, I've actually quite enjoyed driving for the smaller teams, going after the works teams, and then if you're able to beat them, that for me was much more satisfying. Um, but, you know, when I went to, to Bentley, again, it was a big team. Um, it was quite well organised and there were two halves to the team there was what well, I'd say that the German side and there was the English side and to be fair the Germans did a very good job very methodical um, the English side I thought could have done things a bit better um, I was less experienced I think in, in knowing how to deal with those things which I think helped me later on when I went yeah. to, to Peugeot because I could see similar things that, that, okay, I can see when that happens, you need to that's do. the end result. Yeah. And that's not the end result we want. So, yeah. you know, back then in 2003, I, I still had a bit to learn in, on, on that side. And, okay, I, th I do believe you make your own luck. And I think some of the problems that came to us were self-inflicted in, in some ways. Um, difficult to quantify, but that's yeah. kind of when you look at it, you kind of think, yeah, that... We, we did trip over ourselves on a, on a couple of things. We had the speed. I mean, the car was phenomenal. It was probably one of the better cars I've ever raced at Le Mans that could could win overall. Uh, it was a better car than the Peugeot, but the Peugeot had phenomenal engine behind it. Um, it was still efficient, but it was a bit more tricky to drive where the, the Bentley was just really solid and it just gave you so much confidence to just keep pushing. So hence your numb kind of emotionless feeling at the end because you knew you had the car to, to win. Well, yeah, we, and, you know, because of, you know, like I said, I wasn't always in a works team. That meant that I never, uh, not ever, only Toyota in the 92, when I was my first time there, was I thought I had a shot at winning, but yeah. we had a crash on the opening lap and we were miles behind, so we were wiped out completely on that one. But the next time I had a chance really was, was in 2003. Because my years with Panos, there was no way we were going to win with that car. It was a great experience, a great yeah. challenge to go up against the works guys. And we even led, which is a miracle, <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I remember going down the Molson straight with McNish behind me and I'm I'm doing this <laughs> on the straight. I'm looking at the mirror and I'm, I'm kind of giving him the bird behind, <laughs> as he's behind me, trying to keep him behind. But yeah, it lasted for a few laps, but that was yeah. our that was our only real glory for, for Le Mans in that type of car. So... Um, you know, I knew going to Bentley, I had a real shot at winning and those don't come around that often, you know. So when we finished second, I went across the line. I just was, I was just <laughs> no emotion. So angry, we just sort of yeah. let that one slip. And because yeah. I got onto podium and I, you couldn't ask for two better teammates than Mark Blundell and Johnny Herbert yeah. to lift your spirits you know yeah. so yeah. Uh, we they quickly wrap wrap their arms around me and said ah don't worry about it perhaps you know you know it's all over now let's just yeah. enjoy it you yeah. know we can't change it and they were right and you know we went back to the um the motor home and and all all the drivers all, all six drivers sat down with the biggest English breakfast you've ever seen because <laughs> <laughs> we'd kind of been starving ourselves yeah. all the way through yeah. eating seeds and um, yeah we ended up tucking in we, and after that it was it was fine but certainly when I crossed the line and going up to the podium just just felt like it took forever because well, it must be go such an in intense lead up and then the the race itself and then it's it's the limited amount of racing I've done you get to an end of a, of a big race and, and there's a slightly strange what happens now feeling anyway isn't there so there is um and the you got the 
pressure for yeah. Bentley to win that year was immense. They had blown the budget big time. <laughs> they obviously had to build a new car. They brought new drivers in for the third year, and it was it was a, a must do yeah. scenario. You have to win. There's just no no doubt about it. So I mean, great result. They ended up finishing first and second. Um, the cars were quick enough to be first and second. I think that's partly why that that sort of felt a bit tough at the end because yeah. you, you had a 50% chance of winning and you got the other 50 that didn't so <laughs> there's lots of um, accusations almost there was an Audi but you drove both when yeah. you had that test and was it Johnny Herbert crashed at the beginning and then you just jumped in an R8 I jumped in the R8 yeah yeah thank it, you Johnny they gave me an opportunity <laughs> to drive an R8 so um, was was it an R8 with very different cars very different no the car the car um, was designed by Peter Ellery and uh, it was very much an English designed vehicle. Um, I can't tell, I can't say to you the previous car was, was that done the same? I don't know. I can't remember, but certainly that one was. Um, the only difference is obviously it had the RA engine in the back. Um, and when you, when you drove that, you know, out of the pits, you start going through the gears, you go, ah, now I know why they've been quite successful. <laughs> <laughs> it was a phenomenal engine. It was just yeah. so easy to drive and just perfect for what you want to do at Le Mans. Um, and then I obviously Johnny crashed, uh, wrote, wrote the thing off. And then um, I jumped in the R8 at the end of the test because there was a big tyre test. That's why we were there. Yeah. And uh, that felt very, very different. But again, I got in and I thought, okay, now I know why they've been so tough to beat because the car was just really easy to drive. Uh, the front end probably could have been a bit better. It was a little bit too much understeer, and, but very solid in the rear. just gave you a lot of confidence. Yeah. And it just did, you know, just did everything you want as a driver except for just that little bit of front end. But Did he get close to the Jag, the XJ14? Yeah, the XJR14, I think... It was kind of another level. Yeah. yeah. It's what everyone says that's driven that car, isn't it? it yeah. It's, it's the, just the best thing. Yeah. I, every driver I know who's driven it, whenever they're asked, you know, I always sort of read in the magazines or, or talk to them personally and what's the best car you've ever driven? XJR14. I mean, literally immediately. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. um, that was a phenomenal car. And I, I mean, I never drove the Peugeot that came a year or two after. Yeah. When my brother won Le Mans yeah. in 93. That thing was another step ahead of that of the XJR14. So that would have been a, a quite something to drive as well. Do you do compare Le Mans stories and cars and only meet up and then with with Jeff? Oh, with Jeff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> was there like a no racing rule? <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, I mean we do and we don't. I mean, you know, we don't talk racing all the time just most of the time but um, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it is ingrained in us so you'd have to expect that but uh, you know he didn't do as many le mans as i did so i kind of beat him on that one i've <laughs> <laughs> actually got a few questions about le mans for my readers yeah. um stephen gate has asked about the acura how close was it in 2009 to racing at le mans and would that have stopped you oh nine would that stop you winning with peugeot uh, good question, Stephen. Um, I, uh, part of the reason I did Le Mans was because in my contract, um, we were not doing Le Mans that year. So it was kind of funny because obviously we were doing the Acura program and you've got to remember that was around the financial crash. So all Honda's programs were being pulled 
and hours got pulled, reinstated, pulled, reinstated, pulled, reinstated. We didn't know what was going to happen to to it. And eventually it, it was decided that we would do that year. Um, and But we knew that there wasn't going to be a program after that. So I, we turned up at Sebring and we started, well, I arrived there and I just looked at my emails just to see what was going on. And uh, there's one from Peugeot, you know, what's your availability <laughs> for Le Mans, you know, as a, as a, as a sub, you know, as a subject title. Yeah. And I've gone, <laughs> open up, open up. You know. And it was like, okay, well, so I obviously had the ability to do Le Mans because in my contract, um, even though I was a full kind of Highcroft contracted driver, we weren't doing Le Mans. So obviously I had the opportunity to do it, but of course Peugeot was a direct competitor in the P1 class. So um, I had to get the okay from Honda and, and Duncan and Duncan Dayton straight away said, oh, man, you've got a great opportunity, go and do it. But obviously with Honda, it's it's a much bigger process in terms of getting the okay. And, and it was to be fair to them, it was only three or four days they came back and said, yeah, no, we've, we've okayed it. So then we did the test and I ended up going to Paris to sit in front of uh, Serge and um, uh, Bruno as well um, and it was kind of funny because uh, Bruno said I, 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 I'm I, not that in favour of you being part of our program okay. because, <laughs> well, because I was a competitor yeah. and um, I said well I said the very fact I'm sitting in your office probably tells you about how I go about my racing and I left it at that and they went they looked at each other and went okay Fair answer. Um, and the deal deal happened very, very quickly. So uh, it was obviously, yeah, I got another chance to win Le Mans. You know. The Acura was revolutionary, wasn't it? The, the, had tire, the same tyres in the front and back. What was that like to drive? Because you're obviously not used to that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they're saying, drive this sports car, which will feel completely different to anything else you've driven. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was uh, the first time that those sort of big tyres went on the front of a sports car like that and if you look at what's happened since that's the way the trend went. Um, obviously it would have been better if Honda wrote the big checkout that was needed <laughs> yeah. to make the tyre the an actual front tyre and not a yeah. rear because you know a rear tyre construction and a, and a front tyre is very different so it so was the concept was sound but the the, the concept was definitely sound but it, it made it very difficult for to generate the kind of heat on the on the tire, um, and that thing had a, a fair amount of downforce at the time, just didn't have the motor like like yeah. a Peugeot or an Audi. But um, in terms of downforce, it was it was quite high. But even still, we couldn't switch the front tire on, um, and so you know you obviously have a camber that you run run at, and we would end up only running sort of that much of the tire just to get some heat into that. Well, just that's the only th yeah. only way it would. Not that it would work. I mean, it didn't really work as well as we would have liked. And if you put any real steering lock, you just lost the front. So you ended up having to drive it like a 50p edge yeah. all the time like this, which was very unnatural um, and made it quite tricky. So uh, I wouldn't say it was, you know, certainly it wasn't a, a, a plus in terms of performance, but it did uh, make way for the trend later on for, for Michelin to, to build the tyres that you see today yeah yeah and there's one more question from jamie smith about 93 and the jag 
did you feel robbed? They don't sort of hold back. Our <laughs> do I feel readers? robbed, James? Yes, I do. <laughs> Simple as that, yeah. I still do. Well, you know, that's, you know, I still, even today, I still hear about things from people in the industry that obviously knew something I didn't know at the time that have told me kind of, you know, in the last few years. And I go, well, is that really, is that really what, what, what happens? You know, so uh, there was a lot of politics going on at the time. Again, uh, yeah, I mean, Tom... <laughs> bless him Tom Walkinshaw and, and the ACO hated each other yeah. and so we were wrapped up in all of that mess and of course there was other politics going on with Jaguar and Tom was a master at playing that kind of game and um, you know on the weekend we we had a, a win um, my brother won overall so from a family point of view we ended up having two firsts and it was a great moment and then obviously afterwards we we knew that that it was taken away from us yeah. so um unfortunately we just got wrapped up in all that politics which was a shame but you know the race itself was was a, a great challenge and i had you know the, the car landed on my foot um when i was doing a pit stop practice change <laughs> so i was That's putting i was putting dc in the car <laughs> and uh you know the, the rear wheel came off and i'm putting him in my so my foot's underneath the car and then the air jack pops off bangs right on my foot and i couldn't move it i mean you know it's just squashed pinned. yeah pinned so they put it up and then I, I run off take my shoe off put it under cold water and so two days later i got the race my foot's like ballooned it's purple and i'm having to wear a running shoe not not a normal yeah. race shoe so had you broken bones in it or was it no i wouldn't say i broken it but it was so badly bruised yeah. it was just painful to walk on it was my right foot and i wasn't left foot breaking because the gearbox just yeah. didn't really allow you to do that and i wasn't really right left foot breaking up until that point anyway so i had to break with my sort of foot on the side to use yeah. the rubber yeah to do it like that which wasn't brilliant but i could still you know still manage it probably wasn't able to, to do the, the maximum but it was enough you know um, and uh, then I had a fuel leak in the car as well so I'm driving along doing my stint probably got four or five laps to go on my stint I go look I got a really strong smell of fuel and I'm they said well just if you can keep going keep going okay so then my feet started to slip so the so sloshing yeah the fuel the started to, to run towards where my heels were where the pedal box was so i could feel it slipping and i'm and i'm getting on the radio and say look my feet are slipping i'm gonna have to come in they said well if you can get to the end of the stint that would really help us okay so i go to the do the stint yeah. come in um and they obviously pull it in into the garage they, they've obviously filled it up with fuel they're looking to see the leak they found the leak and then they said um we found the leak but could you go out and do a few more laps while we decide what we want to do with it? And I said, no, <laughs> F off. Yeah. I said, um, you can damn well replace it. So yeah. they, they did, they replaced it and off we went again. And obviously back then it was the first of that kind of GT category. Yeah. So there wasn't a huge amount of competition. The major competition was Porsche with Stucky and, and Stucky or some, one of them hit, hit the wall and, and obviously that was a big problem for them. So it gave us a lot of yeah. uh, room to have these kind of problems and still get to the finish. Um, and of course we all didn't know whether the car was going to make it to the end anyway um and it, and it did and we we ended up getting the win but got thrown out later which you know it's a shame for everybody who put the effort in leading up to the event during the event 
because um, it's not just my victory, it's, it's everyone who worked on that program's victory and, and it was taken away from all of us. Yeah. Then you were, went back as a GT with Aston. That was quite, a, everyone likes that period, that GT1 period yeah. of Aston's against Corvettes and yeah. it was just a, a good rivalry, rivalry, wasn't it? What was it like on the inside, up against Magnussen as well? Yeah, <laughs> oh, it was great. I mean, I have to say, you know, that, that period is certainly, you know, one of my favourite times, yeah. you know, because that, that uh, Aston at that time were, were not a huge factory um, situation. You know, they, they, they didn't have the money. It was quite tight. Uh, it's very different now. They, they yeah. like they got more money to, yeah. to sort of play with. But back then it was very, very tight. So to beat Corvette with their resources and drivers that they had was was just the ultimate challenge and and we did beat them and you know at Le Mans the DB9 um, obviously the first year we were there the car was just way too hot I mean it was hot than panels huh? hotter than the panels <laughs> yeah hotter than the panels yeah um, it, it was just incredibly hot and of course it wasn't on the sort of uh, that the snag list at the top, it was at the bottom. Yeah. Anything to do with the driver comfort. Yeah, driver <laughs> comfort was definitely down at the bottom. And it wasn't actually, well, I, I kept saying to them, guys, it's too hot, it's too hot, it's too hot. Um, and no one other driver was dared to sort of say anything. But, you know, if I'm in a team, if that's the problem, I'm going to say it. You know, so I said, look, this is going to be a problem. And, of course, we ended up getting to Le Mans. It was the hottest Le Mans yeah. <laughs> in a long, long time. And uh, we just got cooked absolutely cooked you know 74 degrees in the cockpit um and it was just insane and by the end you know none of us really could drive i had a i had a um a calf muscle just got ripped apart by dehydration um darren turner's foot had a massive blister on it because the pedals were so hot he he's got quite sensitive feet with that um so he he found it really a trouble to to go and actually drive the car at any sort of limit and then stefan sarazen had double vision so when the <laughs> rain yeah so between us you know i mean you spend all this money yeah you know and the driver comfort thing gets put to the bottom and then then when it, we we were because that you don't know if you remember that that time darren turner got a couple of penalties in his first stint we were a lap behind before we even got going so we managed to get that back to 50 seconds yeah. behind the leader with with still a bit to go in the race but of course by that time we were we were so cooked we, we couldn't drive and we had a radiator leak and they decided to change the radiator that just gave us that little bit of rest Breather. and and stefan's sort of vision came back so it was decided that he would finish the race um and we still finished third but you know, we we could have had a better race if if we didn't have the penalty yeah. and, and and the conditions were inside the cop were better. Where where Corvette under, have understood that for a long time. Um, in fact, I think it was a race at um, when I was in the Ferrari five fifty yeah. with ProDrive, and we were racing against Corvette, and we were at Elkhart Lake, and uh, Johnny O'Connell was driving, and he just got toasted, and his he just dropped like this. Magnuson got him on the last lap and we won the race. And ever since then, they've just put a massive effort into driver cooling. So on that race, they were just cruising along, maximizing their abilities where we were, we were getting toasted and, and, you know, we, our performance dropped as, as a result of it, yeah. which, which, you know, is, is not what you need. Now I messaged Darren Turner last night. Did you? In the, in the hope of getting some dirt or some oh, yeah. interesting gossip. But no, he, he had some interesting things to say, actually. 
A, that you were the best teammate pretty much he's ever had. Oh, that's very nice of him. And he learned an incredible amount about driving under pressure. And, and he picked out Le Mans 2007 last in, in the rain in oh, yeah. the race with a Corvette. And he said that if, if you wanted a, a lesson in just soaking up pressure, that would be the one that he would pick out. So I'd be interested what you remember of that, of that race and maybe that, that moment in particular. Because it's quite unusual, I think, isn't it, for, for another driver to pick another driver's moment as, as something that stands out to them. So was, Yeah, I mean, you know, Darren was a great teammate, really was. We worked very well together. Um, there was no aggro whatsoever. We just worked as a unit. Uh, he's a very, very gifted driver. So I was very lucky to, to actually drive with him and, and have the success that we had because the both of us just bounced off each other. Uh, going back to that Le Mans race, yeah, that was intense pressure. And I wasn't actually meant to drive. <laughs> that was, that was you know, I'd done my stint. I'm thinking, great, you know, the, the, the cloud's looking yeah. pretty evil over there. I'm not due to drive. And um, the rain started to come. And it was supposed to be Ricard Rydell who was who was meant to. It was his his turn to get in the car to finish it, and he just said, "Guys, I don't know the car as well as you do. I don't feel comfortable driving in those conditions." You know, which was massively brave of him yeah. to come forward and say that because yeah. he worked for the team. So look, you need to put somebody in there that's got a bit more experience. So so Darren kind of finished his stint, and I went back in to finish the race, and and yeah, that that was. <laughs> Aston Martin haven't won in years, yeah. you know, and you're you've got their victory in your hands that they're all waiting for, and it was horrendously wet. Um, even behind the safety car, the thing was aquaplaning, and then they threw the green when it was still aquaplaning, and the Corvette was was much better than us in in those conditions. It drove past me like I was standing still to try and get that lap back. So yeah. all of a sudden. It, got its lap back so then we're on the same lap and the only thing that felt like I had some control of the situation was my hands it was really weird I felt very disconnected to the whole car because you know the, the whole yeah. situation but my hands felt like old hands on a steering wheel <laughs> so I just focused on on my hands and trusted my hands through that process um, and then of course we we ended up winning the race so but that must have been quite a different feeling to the crossing the line in the bentley then if you yes it was <laughs> yes yeah i mean that was a fantastic um moment in 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 certainly my career and and obviously the the whole team that worked so hard on that db9 program to to win le mans in that way and then of course we we won again the following yeah. year so um we were able to carry that momentum and learnt a lot through that early stages. I mean, we were lucky to really win our first race for that car at Sebring. Yeah. Um, because leading up to it with the testing, I mean, the thing just wouldn't f finish a, a test without an issue. And of course, it was early days, so that's what you expect, because you go into the first race going... But Sebring, of all places, you yeah, wouldn't exactly. expect it. exactly. I mean, you know, you, if you're going to beat the, the hell out of a car, it's, it's going to be that, that place. So um, we gave it an absolute beasting and testing and of course in the race it, it was just ran like clockwork yeah. and we were competitive and the team did a great job and I was lucky enough to finish the across the line you know having Aston's first victory in the DB9 so um, a great moment um, Christmas guys uh, gonna have to check that you finish your shopping 
I don't think I've started. started. I haven't started my shopping. No, yet. I haven't either. Okay. Well, Mercedes has an idea for you. What's that? Well, um, if you go to their website, you can get a one-hour four-by-four experience around um, Mercedes Benz World. Um, so it's okay. an, an ideal solution. Oh, yeah, so you are offering that to us, or always uh, to, yeah, to your viewers? Dickie, Dickie will sort that out for you. Yeah, I'll put it on expenses. All you need to do is call 0370 400 4000 and quote off road one hour driving experience, and you'll yeah get to drive around, hack around in a 4x4 for an hour. So it sounds like a good present, doesn't it? And well, speaking of which, could they still buy invest into Project Brabham for Christmas? No, presents we've we've uh, we, we've closed that whole campaign, it did its job. Um, uh, we've only done that recently, but we kept it open because we were successful in, in our initial raise. Um, Indiegogo said, look, you've been successful. You can have uh, what we call in-demand. Um, I think it was forever funding back then, but it's called in-demand now. So they said, look, you can keep it open until you get to a certain point you want to close it. So we did. And of course, initially people were still contributing, but over over the last sort of six months, it's it's only been little bits here and there. Um, and we're going through a kind of change at the moment. Um, so we close, close that, coming up with a different way of communicating with the community and, and see what happens next year. So I think last time you were here, apparently you had wine, fudge and brownies, but you're also saying you just come back from a visit to Ligier. Oh, God, cool. yeah, that yeah, was a while was ago, wasn't three it? Three years ago, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what sort of changed since the, the trip to Ligier? That's kind of a big step forward to... Yeah, I mean, at that time, we were obviously trying to understand uh, the LMP2 market and, and understand, you know, what, what would it take to get one of those cars, understand more about the car, what were the pros and cons, things like that. Um, and, of course, one of the challenges with Project Brabham has been, you know, we got an initial fundraise, but there's no mechanism for any other money to come in. So your burn rate... You know, it's quite high, obviously, because there's nothing else coming in. So to to manage all of that all the way through this process is, like I said, has been quite a challenge. Um, so the way we kind of went out to investors has changed. So much of has changed because of that first probably year, year and a half. Um, it was very difficult to sell something to an investor, which was just an idea and a, and a name. You know, so we took that feedback and thought, well, okay, we've got to think about this a little bit differently. We took a different direction, um, and that direction um, looks like it might pay off. So we're still working towards it, but it's a lot better shape than it was, say, 12 months ago. Yeah. So if you had signed that deal with Ligier, would it would you have been worse off because of the rule changes and? the problems that's been in LMP2 in the past few years? Yeah, I mean, it was, it depended on how much money you had, obviously, if you could absorb that change. Um, if you look at, if you look at, at the time, Ligier were the hot, the hot car to have. I can't find Ligier out there at the moment. You know, they're all oracles. So, um, you know, yes, potentially that, that could have been a problem. But we were nowhere near in a position to be able to do that. I mean, we raised 300 grand. That is not going to get you a race team. Yeah. That, you know, it's not even going to buy you a car. Yeah. So um, we had to obviously go out and, and try and raise more money and get the right partners. And that, 
that's just that they don't come on trees you yeah. know what i mean so <laughs> yeah. yeah i the amount of doors i've knocked on uh in the city trying to raise money and of course i've never done that i don't know how that that world operates and so you're going in blind um, and then you think oh there's an opportunity and then you go off on this direction because you don't have the experience to know whether or not it's real um and unfortunately you have to learn the hard way you know so um that's when we probably had to kind of put a stop to the way we were going to market and find another solution and like i said that other solution has had a lot more traction than um going the way we did it so it's just these things take time and when i started i really thought you know within a couple of years we'll be racing we'll be doing all this but you know i was i was so inexperienced in in that yeah. area it was all hope and and you know yeah we we should be able to achieve it but you're kind of doing it the other way to most people though aren't most people make a lot of noise and then they don't actually deliver on anything and it just fades away i think you guys have made some noise to start with but then you yeah, I mean, sure it, it's it not, I mean, it it's, right, I like guess. I said, it hasn't been easy. It's been quite a challenge. Um, so what we're working on, I think I think if, if we can pull it off, then I think people will go, fair juice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, would IMSA offer opportunities for you or would P1 now be more, even if this isn't Project Brabham, but as a team owner, would you look at IMSA over P1 now? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, um, you know, if you put your sort of cards on the table and you're kind of looking at it, you know, IMSA obviously has some attraction. I think the manufacturers are, are quite keen to get more and more involved. Obviously, Honda are, are now coming back with Penske in, in that program. Um, it gives them the opportunity to develop and, and sort of contribute than just buying a standard car and, and going racing. Uh, the LMP1 situation... You know, you could buy a, a stock kind of standard LMP1 and, and potentially win them on next year, yeah. you know, if you if you get it right. Um, don't know what Toyota are doing. I mean, they, they sound like they're coming back, which would be great, but, you know, they're going to be streaks ahead of everybody else, as Audi were for, for many, many years. So, um, you know, that, there's nothing new about that be great to see Alonso uh, racing there because yeah. yeah exactly yeah. and I think it will be be great not just for sports cars but for us for the sport in general yeah. there's a real competition as well in LMP1 if you're behind Toyota yeah which must be a for next year yes yeah um, which must be a positive as well for the sport and for sports cars um, you must have a vested interest as well being have such a career in sports cars but are you optimistic or are you pessimistic um, always optimistic to a point, um, but as you said, if you kind of went through that, that list at the very beginning, I've been around a while and I've seen a lot of cycles within sports car racing where it's manufacturers piling money into it, the technology goes like this, the spending goes like this, and then they go, oh, hang on a minute, we're spending too much money, and they, they go out. Uh, it goes back down, falls into the privateers' hands to keep the sport going, and that opens up opportunities. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, but it's just the nature of the game. 
you know, we're going through another cycle. Uh, I think the the amount of time that the World Sports Cars has been around is enough where there's a fairly good footprint and foundation to, to, to keep it going. So it, it's not vulnerable like perhaps it's been in the past. It's it's pretty solid in that sense. So that's that's good for the future. And uh, it will open up opportunities for, for potentially other teams to win them on against the manufacturers because if the Toyotas stop like they did last year, which is, you know, still possible. Um, I'm sure it would be not good for them if, if they only had to be themselves like that. Yeah, it would be even worse, <laughs> which I'm sure they're contemplating the risk factor in, in all of that. Um, it is a tricky one, isn't it? Because they're, if they win, it's, well, they should win because they're the only big, big team there. If they lose, then... It's lose-lose, anyway. Yeah. yeah. But it would be a shame if they weren't if they weren't there, I think they probably understand more than anyone that you you can't just turn up and expect to win that race because yeah, it's well, been exactly. almost oh, close yeah. enough I mean, to for touch Toyota. For I mean, you know, they got so close two years ago, didn't they? I mean, it was heartbreaking to see that. And I always, I, I've always said afterwards, could you imagine if if Porsche pulled up behind and pushed that car across the <laughs> yeah. line? The goodwill towards Porsche, you you couldn't buy that. Yeah, yeah. you know but they didn't. <laughs> As a team manager, would you be on the radio saying, just Yeah, just get behind there, nudge, <laughs> nudge him along and, and, and just push him to, yeah, it's like, it's like cars, you know, the... the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, one quick hypothetical question from Ben Dreco. Um, if Brabham, hypothetically, returned to Formula One, who would you have as drivers? <laughs> I guess that's an open question. Unlimited budget, presumably. On the grid right now, who do you, or not on the grid? That's good. a good question. That is it? a really good question. Uh, well, first of all, Brabham back in F1 would be obviously a great thing, yeah. as long as it's got the right sort of business sense behind it. It's not just an emotional thing. It's it makes sense. There's there's something that will be in place to make it sustainable. To, to keep the thing going because you can be in and out of that that environment pretty quickly if you don't have the right partners and stuff but if I was involved and I, and I had the choice of drivers obviously it would depend on how competitive the car is he's buying time to think here isn't <laughs> oh, he well no I'm just I'm just thinking of the scenario because you say you've got any driver but if you're a midfield driver you don't have the choice yeah so if you're uh, if you're winning then then obviously you would have choice so am I a team that's winning or am I a team a mid 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 team you come in as Sauber come who'd in as Sauber who'd you get then what kind of budget have I got? <laughs> enough. <laughs> enough to enough to attract the right driver for Salba to do the job for Salba. <sighs> or do you get someone that brings in budget? Or do you get a pay driver to then pay a yeah. another driver? Or it's such a complicated question actually, isn't it? I mean I like yeah, I mean I Let's like not blame Ben, but <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're thinking of drivers outside of F one at the moment, like Salba's your kind of next next step in. Um, you know, if you, you know, I think Leclerc is is is, is a definite talent. Um, Ollie Rowland is 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 another one. You know, so I would be looking to bring someone in who's young and and be able to de develop them in in Formula One, but also have another driver that's quite experienced and and can bring a lot to the to the game. Um, you know, I quite like Daniel Ricciardo. I think he's 
yeah he's, he's a he's a big step down though <laughs> well exactly that's what i'm saying yeah so you know would he be interested in driving himself yeah. no he wouldn't be you know um but you you know you, you want to you want that type of driver that that can take that team forward you know you need that that sort of pyramid shape with that one driver driving it forward and the other drivers learning as he as he goes along you know that dynamic is in that environment works works well um and when i went to peugeot normally i was the number one driver in the teams that i drove so i was the one who's at the front saying right this is this is how we're going to do it but when i got there that was alex verts so for me i had to go well okay there's no point in me trying my ego to, to try and be the best and sort of nudge him out of the way that was never going to work so i had to respect the fact that he was the, the the leader in that sense so my job was to back him up and that's how we made that thing work you know you get nico rosberg i think he was looking quite you know he's looking at the cars wasn't he looked like oh, <laughs> was he? i wish i was i'm not there. sure he was looking that far back though <laughs> well, maybe maybe not but <laughs> and you know i've done formula one twice now with teams that just didn't have enough money i was to i was going to you know, say so for you to when you know your, your career trajectory you you'd work hard to get to yeah. formula one you get there your family names over the over the door but yeah. you must have known in 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 your heart you know the situation the team is in relative well, i didn't to, know when i or, or but yeah i had no idea because formula one was just not on my radar um I thought, when I came to England, I thought, okay, I'm doing Vauxhall Lotus, so I'll probably do two years of Vauxhall Lotus, two years of F3, two years of F3000 at the time, yeah. and I might get a Formula One chance. You know, I did half a year of Form Formula Vauxhall Lotus, half a year of Formula Three Class B, one year of Formula Three Class <laughs> A, and straight into Formula One. Um, and, you know, at the time, I was going to be do doing Formula 3000 with Middlebridge and Damon Hill as my teammate. And, you know, we were about to go testing with the new cars. We were testing the next day, everything was done. And then they came in and, and told us, we're closing the team down. <laughs> what do you mean you're closing your yeah. team down? Because they had bought Brabham um, and we were going to do F3000. And, and it was like, what? Well, you know, so they pulled me in and they said, we want you to do Formula One. So that's got to be a mix of emotions, hasn't it? If you know you're on a... Well, they did ask me, they did ask me to do Phoenix that week of the Phoenix race. So the, so like, you know, we want you to come and do Phoenix. And I said, no thanks. And they went, what? And I said, I've never driven the car. I'm not yeah. fit enough. I, I just knew I wasn't going to do the job justice. So I said, no. Um, and then obviously two races in, they closed the 3000 team down. It was either do nothing, yeah. find a, try and find a driver, which was too late by then. Or, or do Formula One and um, the the BT fifty eight, which was from the from the nineteen eighty nine season, was a good car. It, it actually had a podium, and I that was the car I first tested. And I thought, oh, this thing is, and it was. It was yeah. such a beautiful car to drive. Did everything you wanted it to do. And then the BT fifty nine came through, which you know the gearbox wasn't ready, so we had to fit the old gearbox in, and and it had the wrong geometry on the rear. It had the aer aerodynamics were all wrong. So there's compromise built in all the way through from the start. All then, the start, there? yeah, and and it was unreliable. It's the first time they went to transverse gearbox, so we always had gearbox problems, which meant you know my first Grand Prix, I, I didn't, I, I think I did five laps before qualifying my first Grand Prix, you know, and I missed out qualifying by three tenths. So I was 
for me, I was quite personally happy that I was able to get that close because yeah. back then it was 30 cars yeah. Yeah, it was going for qualifying. It, it was 26 grid. only going through. So it was cutthroat down the back. If you had any issues you know, like that, you, you were struggling. And I, and I didn't qualify for six, seven races or something because, because of those problems. Yeah. And what I didn't realise at the time when I got there, that they ran out of money. So I'd be going into the, uh, the workshop thinking that the trucks have left, you know, to go and see some of the guys and the, 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 the monocoques, but <laughs> trucks were still there, the monocoques sitting there with no engine. And it's like, well, what's happening? He said, well, we haven't, no one's paid for the engines yet. They won't, Judd won't release until someone's paid for the engines. So we just, every race, it was like this from halfway on. So how, was, how do you, did you feel at, at that point? Did it just feel like your career was out of control? Control because all the things that you couldn't control were just swirling around. Yeah, I, I, it was the first time I'd ever been in a situation where I just had no control of what's going on. Um, and half the team wanted me, half the team didn't. And the team that didn't, the justification was you weren't experienced enough. And I totally get that. Yeah. But if, you, if, if that's what you've got, then surely work towards helping to make the best of that situation and, and they didn't do that at the time. So they were good lessons for me and in terms of what helped me in working with teams and making sure you, you work in a particular way where everybody's working for one another. Because uh, I really hit it big time when I went to Formula One and, and saw that never having had that experience, I didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was a tough, tough year from yeah, that point of view. Yeah. How do you look back on it now? Like with regret, with I guess probably not a fondness, looking back is it uh, i guess the, the two years in formula one certainly um okay lucky to have done it you know better to have been there than never been yeah, there at all. yeah you know kind because it attitude. helped what it did help me was with my cv later on i had f1 experience yeah. okay wasn't like my father's success you know but it was normally people have that to be yeah. fair they, well so. exactly yeah yeah exactly um but that's that was you know obviously that's my benchmark that's what people yeah. were looking at me going well your dad's achieved that what are you achieving you know what i mean and i was down the back not qualifying so i wasn't doing a particularly good job in a lot of people's eyes you know but they didn't realize the difficulties that we had at the yeah. time either um so when i look at formula one it, it 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 helped me have a good sports car career because of the experiences and the perception that i was a formula one driver obviously i never i never got the equipment to do what i think in terms of my talent justice um, and that's borne out in your achievements later in your career, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, so. I was obviously, after I left Formula One, my career took off in, in, in many ways, you know, so, but the experience I gained from that helped me in, in that uh, sports car path. Yeah. What, one thing that struck me when I was doing my homework, looking through your, your CV, the, the difference now, I guess sticking with Formula One in, in a way, but the difference now and... You know, when you started, I think I'm right, so when you started karting, you were probably the same age that Max Verstappen was roughly. When he did F1. When he went to F1. Yeah, yeah. Which is a yeah, yeah, mind-blowing yeah. thing, isn't it? But do you, do you think that's good for the, for the sport? Do you think it skews people's careers? Again, clearly, if you can get to Formula 1, you want to get to Formula 1, whether you're 30, 
20, whatever age. But it, that's a massive change, isn't it, in terms of your learning, your craft and, and your ability to function as a professional throughout a, a career, sustain a career. Yeah, I think as a young driver, you're, you're in some way, you're obviously fighting against all your other competitors, but you're fighting also the, the, the culture of thinking within Formula One. So when I went there, okay, I started karting when I was 17. I'm 24 and I'm a Formula One driver. And I was the second youngest on the grid. Yeah. So JJ Leto was, was younger than I am. And we were the two youngest. Everyone else was sort of 26, 27 and above, you know. So everyone who, who had a team went for the more experienced, older driver. And of course, now they're all looking for this this young gun that comes through that's kind of fearless and there's not many Max Verstappens around. Yeah. But, you know, if you get to a point in your career in F3 or, or F2 and you're 25, 26, you know, pretty much people have written you off of not yeah. getting into Formula 1 because they see you as being too old, even though you've got a lot of experience. So you're fighting against that that mindset as well as obviously it's it's so money-driven now at least when I did it, there were still some opportunities to get into Formula One without having to bring money. Now, I've never bought a penny to a race team. Um, I was just never in that situation. Yeah. So, and it's something I'm proud of because I was a paid professional from F3 onwards. So not many of us can say that. So for me, it was a, I was lucky in many ways because in F3, I got a free drive because there was sponsorship. You know, there was a lot more sponsors in F3. There were, there were, there were opportunities for free drives or, or subsidised drives. And I got a free drive. I won a competition to, to, against four other drivers for the, for the Juicen drive. So I got that, won the championship, bang, straight into Formula 1 being paid. And I've been paid ever since. Do you think it's easier now or harder? So if, if you were Sam's shoes, would you think it's easier to make a living in our motorsport now than it was when you started. Just, just a living, not to get to Formula One or... Possibly make a living, but not follow the path in the yeah, sport that you yeah, want to follow, maybe, I don't know. There are probably opportunities to, to make a living now that, you know, GT is yeah. so big, which it wasn't back then. Um, you know, WEC racing, there's, there's some manufacturer involvement still, you know, particularly with, with GT, there's a lot of GT drivers racing for manufacturers who get paid and they make a living, you know, like, like I did when I raced for, for Aston Martin. Um, so, but in terms of that path to Formula One is, is much more difficult, much more difficult. I mean, you can get to F2 and never see Formula One. You could probably win F2 and probably never see well, F1. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, and we talked about Ollie Rowland, you know, who's, you know, is, is a very talented driver, but what does he do next year if he doesn't have an F1 gig? Yeah. Yeah, sport's got very short and increasingly yeah. short memory, hasn't it? I it has. Yeah, yeah, because within a year, everyone will forget about Ollie Roller, you know, yeah. so it's really important he finds something to keep keep himself out there. But, you know, he's been on that Racing Steps Foundation, which is one of those rare programs in today's world where someone talented can get a free ride for a while, you know, and, and they've supported a lot of drivers and still do, um, you know, without them involved in Red Bull and stuff, it would be very difficult. Did you try and deter Sam or into getting into motorsport or was it just his decision? And I didn't push him. And when he started to sort of nag me about getting into a go-kart, it was a while before I put him in one. Um, 
I was busy doing stuff and, and it was like, okay, how serious is this? And he kept nagging, he kept nagging, he kept <laughs> nagging. And I remember being on an aeroplane uh, going to America, one of my many trips to America, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing his voice in my head. And I go, okay, you idiot. <laughs> put him in a go-kart. So when we got back, I put him in a arrive and drive at Bucknell yeah. Park and, and he, he loved it. And, um, you know, he hasn't had the career I've had at that early age. I've been so busy working on my own project, which will help him in the future. But I've had to sacrifice my ability to help him. Yeah which, you know, has, has been difficult for him. How, how did that process work with you and your dad? Well, when I started, I was 17, left school, and I was working on the farm. So, so was that an important thing that you, th was it a necessity or, or, or choice that you, you didn't get involved in karting or competitive driving sooner or? Well, dad didn't want us to drive. Okay, so, so that was very clear. Uh, I went to an agricultural boarding school to learn about agriculture because I was being groomed to be a farmer. Um, and at that time, I knew nothing about motor racing. I've seen a few races, but, yeah. you know, and I was interested because, you know, dad had old magazines and he'd come back with a with an autosport or something. Or a motorsport, motorsport magazine, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> a motorsport magazine. And, and, you know, I was interested. And I, funny enough, I can remember reading a lot about Mike Thackwell, who's my brother-in-law. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I was on the farm reading about this guy called Mike Thackwell. And uh, uh, it's funny, but um, I... Uh, I had no desire or interest or knowledge about motorsport at all till I went to America when I left school and I saw Jeff race Indy cars and that was like, well, okay, this is different to chasing sheep. <laughs> so uh, I ended up uh, going around with him and I saw a go-kart in a workshop and I've spoken about this many times, but I didn't even know people race go-karts. Yeah. You know, so um, that was a bit of an eye-opener and, and it was the seed seeing that go-kart, being with Indy cars for, with Jeff for, for sort of three months, I was in America. And I was really interested actually at that time more on the technical side, even though I'm not a like a mechanic or an engineer, yeah. but I was really interested on how a car worked. So I'd always be in the engineering meetings, listening and learning, you know, so that really got the momentum going. So when I went back to Australia, I said to dad, I want to, I want to get in a go-kart. And he, he just was, he was just stone faced. Like <laughs> yeah. He, he just didn't, he just didn't want to get involved. So I, I convinced my neighbor to go to a go-kart meeting in a place called Griffith. I said, look, there's a go-kart meeting. Oh, let's go and have a look. Oh yeah. Okay. Cause we had a go-kart, but it was like a, you know, Briggs and Stratton engine, yeah. you know, and, and it was, uh, just a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, and we went to the go-kart meeting and like, you know, just, we just couldn't believe what we were watching. It was a New South Wales um, country title. It was a big meet. Um, and we decided right there and then that we would buy a second-hand go-kart, which we did because he was working on the farm and I was working on the farm. So yeah. I was getting a bit of money. We put our money together and we bought a second-hand go-kart and that's how it started. That's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Paul Fernley, you probably know journalist he uh, has asked what the best piece of advice your dad ever gave you I assume it wasn't on the grid at Adelaide but <laughs> <laughs> no, no it was actually <laughs> it, well he that wasn't advice he got he got me the one thing dad dad never really gave much advice he was very much of the opinion there's the steering wheel 
get on with it. Do your own thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, and he he would come to a few races, and he he was so good at seeing what you were doing wrong. Annoyingly, <laughs> I know. I, I know. I mean, you just you know you you just don't want to hear it from your dad, <laughs> do you? But. Um, but he was right, and that always made me feel uncomfortable. But he, I knew he was right at the same time. Um, but I had to learn myself. And um, when it got to that Adelaide race that you're talking about, you know, when I had the argument with him before, what, it, what that whole race showed me was the very thing that he'd always used to say to me. He'd always just say, David, it's all in here. And that's all he'd say. And it, and it took a while to understand what that meant. Um, and he was damn well right. And he knew from being a competitor himself yeah. when you drove really well to when you drove well and what made you drive really well. And it's a mindset. What gets you into that mindset? What motivates you? What makes you angry? How can you turn that into extra motivation? You know, all these little things make the difference. Um, and that was my first experience at Adelaide in 87, going from last to first yeah. in a rage. I was in an absolute <laughs> rage because my dad and I had a massive falling out and I was going to show him. But that, that intent that I had was so much more than I had in any other race up until that point. That was a sort of energy that-, that... It's an energy, exactly. And you build it up by a process of your thinking. And then, of course something like that triggers something inside you where you you got to be careful because that could have been a disaster i could have been so angry yeah i just (laughs) lock up i've taken off six cars because i've got 30 odd cars in front of me uh but i i I realized then i was able to control it and when i got to the end of the race i went how the hell did that happen it must be a very empowering feeling to have experienced that and then know what a difference that makes. Oh. It's just capturing that lightning uh, in a bottle again, isn't uh, it? Uh, yeah, and, and, and over my career, I always would go back to that and go, okay, w- what mood am I in? Because it's all about the mood I was in. You know? So that mood that day was very different to any other day yeah. that I had been in. So to, to put the helmet on, I mean, you know, you, you, before you would just be sitting there, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, you know, you, I couldn't even see the, lo- uh, the well, we didn't have lights, it was the, it was the yeah. flag. I couldn't even see the flag because I was around the <laughs> hairpin, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was so angry, I got in the car and, I'm, and I'm just, I can feel the blood boiling still while I was in the car, which I'd never felt before. And I'm telling my mechanic, I said, you get down there and you tell those guys in front, I'm coming through, so get, them to get out of my way, you know. So he'd walk down there he'd start talking to a few come back and I said what they say he said F off <laughs> so it's like <laughs> oh, blood boils yeah. again you know what I mean and then the, when, when, we were, when we got going I mean it just I drove at a level I didn't knew, even know existed within me you know what I mean so it taught me a lot about the mindset after that which what did your dad say to you afterwards <sighs> well it was satisfying to have won that race <laughs> And what was nice, I guess, in, in many ways that, you know, dad could see what the, the rate in what I was catching the leaders. Yeah. He grabbed Ken Tyrrell. He grabbed Jackie Stewart. He said, oh, come and have a look at this. They were, they were on the pit wall with a mate of mine because he was telling me yeah. all of this. Um, and I'm just, you know, catching them two, three seconds a lap, you know, just wherever there was a bit of space, I was I was there, you know, diving down the inside, round the outside, up over the curb, up over the top of them. It didn't matter. I was I was I was gonna win that race regardless. Um, and I and, and I, I kind of feel like, you know, someone like Senna could recreate that 
nearly every time he got in the car. If that's what he felt every yeah. time he got in the car, you can see why he was yeah. so so good. You know, um, I couldn't replicate that. I had to have triggers yeah. in a way. You know, my, my personality was different to other people. So I knew to get the best out of me, I had to find something that just gave me that extra push, that extra motivation. Normally it needed to piss me off a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I could I could take it to another level. Yeah. Uh, we are quickly running out of time. Are we? But we've had a question or maybe just a statement from Martin McMillan about how great it was to see you at Bathurst this year. Yeah. In the GT eighty six and yeah. the livery as well. Yep. How's that? In the Brilliant. Yeah, it was uh, it was nice to, to go back. I mean, uh, Mike Breen from Toyota there is someone I've known for years. In fact, when I did Ford Lasers in 1985, <laughs> he was involved in that championship. So we go back a long way. Um, and he's been with Toyota for a long time and he was putting this series together and I knew about it because he said, look, we'd, we'd like you to come and do a, a race or two if we can arrange it, you know, so... I knew an invitation would come at the right time and we tried a couple of times, we couldn't quite do it. And then of course, this year he said, look, how would you like to come and do Bathurst? And I looked at my schedule and went, yep. So uh, they are- Delete, delete, delete. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I asked, they asked me about, you know, what livery do you want? I was, well, that's a good question. So, you know, with everything we're kind of working on in the background, I thought, well, here's an opportunity to see what a kind of retro livery looks like on a modern car. Um, Sean Bull came up with the design and we said, yep, let's run with that. And the response was amazing. I mean, everybody walked past there and went, I like that. So that was really cool. And of course, in the in, in throughout the weekend, you know, I mean, I, I turn up, this is the car, we go straight into practice, uh, no power. So it's a very, diff <laughs> very different driving style first up the mountain <laughs> yeah exactly you had to, <laughs> nearly had to go down again but I'll, I'll tell you what if you lost the momentum you were you were toast you know um and then the second session i had a problem so i didn't get to run i was straight into qualify qualified like 25th i'm thinking this is embarrassing <laughs> you know um i've got to i got to get my act together but um the kind of brought the experience in over the 30 years to to sort of know where to place it at the right time to avoid the carnage in front of me um and you know the last race i i end up finishing seventh i think so um it was it was quite satisfying in many ways but it's just nice to go back and drive that amazing racetrack and um be amongst these young guys who reminded me of myself back in 85 <laughs> yeah. you know of of them on a path of of trying to make a career out of motorsport um someone found an amazing stat on facebook but three people have won the Bathurst 1000 and Le Mans. So you and your brother. Yeah. And the third is impossible. No one, no one in the office could get it. Jackie Hicks. It is, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, oh, that's an amazing yeah. stat. That must just blow, blew my mind. I know, yeah, that. I know. Um, he did in the same year as well. Did he do in the same year? yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, what a phenomenal driver he was, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool to think. Um, <laughs> We're the only ones yeah. to do that. I think I'm the only one to have won Bathurst and Spa, 24 hour. So um, that's another good. Yeah, good it's another stat. interesting stat which you know, I keep in my back pocket. Because, <laughs> you know. is, is there a category of racing you wished you'd done that you have? I mean, you've ticked most of the boxes, but is there a particular race or a, a particular? Yeah, category there is. I think um, Indy 500. I, th I was wondering if yeah. it might be 
might be that. I tried a couple of times to go over there and find an opportunity, but um, I think at the time my heart really wasn't in it because I was so much into the European thing that the move over to America, if a op- good opportunity said, yeah, look, you know, let's let's seriously have a chat about this, it probably would have helped. But, you know, it was like, well, how much money can you bring? And, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. I was, well, I don't get bring money, I get paid, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and that's what I'm used to. Um, but there really wasn't that kind of opportunity at that particular moment. I think if I'd have gone after I'd left F1 in 90 and gone over there, I thought, okay, fine. I didn't work in Formula 1. I'll go and do IndyCars. I think I could have had a pretty good career in IndyCars. But, um, yeah, the Indy dangerous five, times, though, then, weren't they? Indy cars, they were, actually. but, you know, that, that's part of the reason I went racing, because yeah. of the danger, you know, pushing yourself against that, um, that potential death trap, you know. <laughs> But that's what I did. That's why I liked it, you know. Um, and, you know, I saw Jeff race there and, and the Indy 500, okay, I think it's, you know, certainly one of the best racing events in the world. And to win that would have been pretty, pretty amazing, you know. Um, my dad went there, you know, first time in 61 with a rear engine car, which no one could get their head round. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, did really well. Um, he probably could have, you know, finish in the top three if if he hadn't had the wrong tyres. I think at the time the Dunlop would just wear out and yeah. they had a cross thread and, and so lost a lot of time. I think he finished ninth. Um, you know, Jeff's race there, Matthew's race there. So three generations have, have been there. Uh, but in terms of an overall victory, it's it's one that's missing from the family. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've done the F1 thing. Yeah. We've done the Le Mans thing. It's, it'd be nice to do the Indy thing. One final question, um, I think, was from James Gent um, and he s- wants your view on the halo uh, given what you just said but you, you weren't racing for the, the danger and the, I guess we're anti-halo then yeah I'm I'm old school still you know like I said I mean part of the reason for, for going racing get up and going racing is is that you know that you're you're pushing yourself against the limits and there's danger and that thrill of the fact that there's danger there excited me. Might seem weird to some people, but that's that's how I no, felt. No, I think we've been conditioned to think that now, haven't we? Everyone's so risk averse that it's almost yeah, taboo subject if you it, say you're comfortable with, with something being dangerous. But. Yeah, I think I went through a really great period of racing um, because it, was, it wasn't like my dad's era where there was a lot of accidents and deaths. Is that why you think he didn't want you yeah, to? Yeah. Because it was such a brutal era that he raced. He, he lost a lot of friends. And so when he retired at 44, I think he felt he could have gone on for another couple of years. Um, Seems bizarre now to be in Formula 1, 44. Yeah, I mean, um, he nearly won the championship. I mean, yeah. he was a championship contender in, in 1944. So, uh, sorry, 1944, <laughs> that's all. 1970. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was, he was 44. Now, when I look at my career, my peak was 43, 44 in terms of my ability to, I, to I guess reach that's a level. what I was alluding to with the, you know, the, the pressure for F1 to take younger and younger, younger drivers. Do you think it's, you, you had a craft to learn and certainly with your, your dad's era of car, you couldn't just drop someone in who'd not done that much racing and expect them to, to master a, yeah. a machine that yeah. requires that's that analog and yeah. do you think the sport's losing something because and then no, detri- no disrespect to, to Max and the, the guys that are you know 
super young now because they're obviously incredibly talented but the cars they're in are so different aren't they and the requirements from the driver are so different do you think some of that man machine kind of I think the interface the, is lost now the, the, the gladiator type scenario you know Bernie was very good at making sure that F1 drivers in the sort of 80s and 90s were, were gladiators you know that they were kind of untouchable and so forth. The danger element fueled that. Um, and me, for a driver, that's what I quite, I, that's what I've always enjoyed. You know, I've never been one for walking around the track and going to the officials, or oh, that looks dangerous, or oh, that looks yeah. dangerous. It is what it is. Let's just get on with it. You know, I, I don't want to hit it, so I won't, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when I see things, how, how it's developed, you know, the, it's a culture of thinking now where the FIA in particular are very safety conscious. Uh, they're involved in a lot of safety programs. Uh, they can't be seen to be promoting yeah. danger, you know what I mean? So there's a conflict there between what racing used to be like and yeah. what, what it is now. Uh, and I think, um, certainly from my point of view, not that I want to see anyone get hurt, but I think we're, we've kind of gone a little bit too far where, you know, if you went off in my day, you, you you, there was a consequence. Now the consequences are arguing with the stewards and yeah, all it is is you're arguing with the stewards whether yeah. you've crossed the white line and and of course you can and come back on. Yeah. Um, but back then the, the the limit was the limit, and you respected that. Um, and so in my era there wasn't that many deaths, but there was still dangerous enough to to make you realise that actually you had to stay on a certain line. If you went over that, you dropped a wheel on the grass. There's a there's a wall right next to you. You know, so uh, the respect level of that limit was much higher, I think, yeah. than what it is today. And, and and racing has changed a lot. You know, it's you can't keep it the same all the time. It's always evolving and changing. Um, whether we need to, I don't know how we get away from it because the whole world is going through this massive shift of you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't, you know, danger, danger, danger. Yeah. But you know, it's it's sort of sterilizing things it's not just racing it's it's everywhere and yeah. and you know I, I like a bit of risk <laughs> <laughs> so now i really want to talk about your macau win but i think macau win yeah 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 but i think we're out of time so oh, we'll yeah. save that oh, for, that's for that's the next one in three years time i guess <laughs> yeah right yeah 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 oh, so, well the the macau weekend hasn't changed so we can still talk true. about it yeah. <laughs> and yes and you've still beaten schumacher and macau so but we'll leave yeah, that, I, I, that That's the pub talk. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so thank you for the hour. It's been a it's been Thanks, guys. Hour. Yeah, really and, appreciate uh, it. Yeah. We'll be watching Project Brabham. Yep. Sounds like something's happening, so there's reason to keep keep paying attention. And thank you, Dickie. Thank you, Alan. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Um, and we have a f probably a few more podcasts between now and the end of the year. Um, so do subscribe and, and tell your friends. Uh, so, yeah, we'll speak to you next time. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best. Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, suddenly there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today and you'll see what I mean. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to.